0: Thanks so much you know, for being here on this Easter Sunday, and for those of you in our overflow room, thanks for being here as well as those of you who are online as we're live at every service this weekend. Hey, uh, today I believe, because I've already seen it happen uh, four other times, I believe that God is going to do something different, something incredible in so many of your lives, uh, and I'm just excited to be able to go on this journey with you. And so my prayer is that you just be open to whatever that may be as we look at this idea of change, You see, we've been in a series called The Week That Changed Everything, and we've looked at the last week of Jesus' life because so much of our New Testament, especially the first four books of the New Testament, talk more about Jesus' last week than almost anything else. And so we come to this last day of this last week, and it got me thinking about things in our society that have propelled change, that have caused us to shift. Uh, for example, uh, 9-11 you know be one of those things that it just changed our society for you know forever. Uh, for one example is is if you've never been to an airport, uh, it was a different way of dropping off and picking people up, you know, before 9/11. Or how about in 2007? You know, when the iPhone from Steve Jobs was introduced, uh, the people have said, again, you can find the iPhone anywhere in the world or in 2012, uh, Facebook, you know, goes public. Which uh, led to things like Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, and TikTok. And regardless of what you think about it, it has made a definite change in an upcoming generation. Uh, I know it's too soon to talk about it, but what about March of 2020? COVID, right? It affected so- everybody. It affected everybody, and it changed us. You know, during that season, maybe beyond. But most importantly, on February 2nd, 2014, the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. Come on, people. There are significant moments in our lives. And as a kid who grew up in the shadow of the kingdom, it was a pretty significant day. Now, all kidding aside, I know for myself, it would be hard for you to be able to identify what have been some personal days that changed your life forever. What have been some moments? And they could be good or they could be not so good because those things happen in our lives. Maybe for some of you, it was a graduation You know, of high school or college or master's degree or whatever, you're like, man, I got through this and it changed your life forever. Uh, Maybe for you it was getting into that first job or that career and you're like, I can't believe I'm in this and get to do my dream job or maybe you got called into the office of that same dream job and you were told, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to let you go and it actually changed things forever. Uh, uh, Maybe uh, it was relationally and it was a will you marry me situation where you're like, okay, marriage is gonna change our lives for the rest of our lives. But we also know the reality on the other side that maybe you heard, I want a divorce. And it changed things. Uh, Maybe you had a child. It's a boy. It's a girl. Or maybe you lost a child in miscarriage like my wife and I did a couple different times. Or maybe you lost a child in general. Uh, Maybe it was a day you achieved some life ambition or goal. Or maybe you heard the news from the doctor that said, I'm sorry, but you have cancer. Maybe you adopted a child. Or maybe it was when A loved one passed away. All of these are moments, words that impact our lives. And what starts out as a day that I've noticed usually turns into a season, especially if it's negative, especially if it's painful. Usually doesn't just leave it one day because those things don't usually last for the rest of our lives. It's usually something that's hard. In fact, uh, let me give you one example as you listen to the story of Kim Sanko.
1: Religion to me as a kid was There's a VBS on the corner and my mom would say, hey, go to church because it was free childcare for the week. And so religion to me was just a week of having fun with kids in the neighborhood. Um, But when they would speak of God during those VBSs, I would always sit there in so much anger. Like if you loved me so much, you would not allow what's happening to me and what's continuing to happen to me. I accepted God did not love me. That I very much accepted as a kid, that I was not worthy of that love. I was not deserving of that love. I was not wanted to be loved in that way. And as I got older, what I felt as a child, I felt like as an adult, it confirmed, you're not loved, you're not worthy, you're not wanted. And so for me, God was a lie. It was uh, something to deceive you, that it was to trick you that there's good in this world and there really is not. So in every part of my life, I just felt, if I can control it, it can't hurt me. If I can uh, be the best at everything, then no one can see fault in me. If I can achieve a goal and go 10 steps beyond it, then no one can critique me. Uh, So from that point forward, I just knew I could do it all on my own, being alone.
0: We seem to remember and hold on to those negatives. It's like when somebody gives you a compliment and a compliment and compliment. All you need to do is hear a criticism and we tend to hold on to those things. But there's devastating moments. There's devastating seasons you know, in our lives. And if you've been in one or are in one, I want to make sure you know on this resurrection morning you're not alone. You see, the disciples, the followers of Jesus were in that moment, not only on Friday, but all day on Saturday as well. You see, their friend, their leader, their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord has just been killed. And they're thinking, what now? What do we do? I mean, talk about loss in their lives, their plans, their future, their relationships and doubt, and maybe all gone. And it gets worse. They're literally fearing for their lives because if they can kill Jesus, then what's to stop all those people from killing all the followers of Jesus? And so they're hiding and they're cowering and they're, they're just devastated by this day and this moment that changed their lives forever. They had no idea. The things were about to change, I'm about to tell you, but the story didn't end there for them, and the story doesn't end for you either. In fact, let's just talk about the day that changed everything. We're going to look in John chapter 20, which is the longest kind of record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I kind of want to walk this through. you kind got to put yourself in their situation. It says, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. (laughs) It's always my favorite. When you're the author, you get to give yourself an own title. You know, and so he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. Well, that's me, John. So you may call me your favorite pastor now of anybody on staff, you know, because that's what I'm going to pen to you. Anyway, so she ran to find Simon Peter, and she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Again, she has no idea that this is happening. She thinks the body has been stolen up to this point. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) For all eternity, for thousands of years and millions of people who are going to read this story, he's penning out. He goes, hey, I'm going to add this one little detail. I ran faster than Peter. You know, He's slow just so everybody knows that he's slow. Can you imagine the conversation in heaven? Dude, you really gotta throw me under the bus like that? It's like they're brothers or something, you know? And so you you see this, you know, kind of have, there's always humor, you know, as we kind of walk through this. And and so he stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple John, who had reached the tomb first, Also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Talk about anticlimactic. You know, like, John is the only one, and he's writing this, kind of looking back, saying that he believes on what's happening. Peter doesn't believe. The rest of the disciples don't believe. In fact, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angel asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a deep state of grief. But obviously when you're in grief, you don't remember things and you don't remember people interactions. Because there's no way that she would have uh, approached angels you know, like that if she wasn't in that deep state of grief. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Now, here's what's important about that. John makes a really important point for us to understand this, and I love this. Do you realize that it was in a garden, the Garden of Eden, where sin and death entered into the world? And now it's a different garden at the resurrection where sin and death is now conquered and no more. Everything lost in Genesis chapter three has now been reclaimed here in John chapter 20. And so it's so cool to see that John would add that little tidbit as a reminder as we look at Jesus appearing as a gardener. "'Sir,' she said, "'if you have taken him away, "'tell me where you have put him, "'and I will go and get him.'" "'Mary,' Jesus said." It's fascinating, That Jesus doesn't reveal himself to Mary by telling her who he was, but by telling her who she was to him. All All he had to do was say, Mary. And she turned around and she cried out, Rabboni, which in Hebrew means teacher. And then Jesus says, don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. It's important to note that for some reason, Jesus decides that a woman would be the first witness to the resurrection. Now, why is that so important? Because in a court of law, for a witness to bear testimony to an event or an instance, women's testimony in Jesus' day didn't count. And yet in the eyes of God, it sure did. then. The, the day wasn't over, though. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. See, they are fearing for their lives. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, you are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, also nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Man, it isn't like that like so many of us. Right when we're going through a state of grief, when we're going through a time when the, our entire our legs, our life has been taken from, from under us, and other people are trying to console us or give us wisdom or advice, we're just like, I don't want to receive any of that at this time unless. And yet, let me fast forward just a bit. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. What I love is that Jesus meets Thomas right where he's at. He doesn't shame him, he doesn't put him down. He says, If this is what you need, great, I'm gonna be that for you right now. So that was the day that changed everything. But I want to kind of, with our time we have left, just narrow in on the moment itself. Specifically, the event, the resurrection that actually changed everything. Because whether you're a follower of Jesus for a long time, or maybe you don't believe in Jesus, you just kind of came to Easter, you know, because it's just something you had invited to, or something that you do, I need you to be very clear and understand this. We celebrate Easter, not because of religion, but because in Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, an event occurred that changed the world. Now, I've talked to a lot of people who've chosen not to be followers of Christ for numerous reasons. Uh, One may be, you know, I don't want to follow Jesus because I don't like Christians. And if that's what Christianity is about, I want nothing to do with them. In fact, you may have been hurt by Christian people. You may have been hurt by the church, either things that you read or things that you see, you know, in the news and all that kind of stuff that you've been hurt. So let me just first say, I'm sorry. Whether you ever get the apology from that person or that church before, you're going to get it from me. I'm sorry that that happened to you. But I also want to make sure you understand that Christians are not the foundation of Christianity. That's not the foundation of Christianity. Uh, Other people you know, uh, object to Christianity because they read in the Bible or they're shown different passages in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and they're like, this is weird. I don't get this. Is this who God really is? And that can be very hard to understand. But let me be incredibly clear that the Bible, not even the Bible, is the foundation of Christianity. It's not. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of Christianity. If you have no resurrection, the Bible is meaningless. It doesn't matter what the Bible says if there's no resurrection. You see, the cross was was what Jesus did to pay for our sins. It was the payment that was given. The resurrection is the receipt. It's proof to say that that the cross is real. Without the resurrection, the cross, at best, is a prophet on a cross who said some nice things when he was here on earth. But the resurrection is the foundation. So the question becomes, how do we actually know what happened? I mean, how do we really know if that is the linchpin, if that is the foundation of Christianity, how do we know that it's happened? And we're not the only ones to ask that question, obviously. In fact, not too many years after Jesus rose from the dead, people in that era ask the same question. In fact, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, I passed on to you what was most important and what was also passed on to me. Here's what's most important. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by, and here's the evidence, he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 Of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, he's saying, you can ask them yourselves. They're still here. They're still living amongst us. Though some have died. Then he was seen by James. This is Jesus' half-brother. And later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all apostles. In fact, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle after the way that I persecuted the church. So how do we know that the resurrection happened? Let me just give you some historical perspectives outside the Bible, as well as things inside the Bible, so you can see this is true. If you believe that Alexander the Great lived, there's more evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is that Alexander the Great lived. Let me actually walk through this. For example, Jesus really did exist. In other words, he's not a made-up Disney character. So he didn't just make him into existence and just kind of write fables about him. There is an undeniable proof that Jesus actually exists. We also know that Jesus died on a cross. That's also undeniable. And we know that there is an empty tomb. Now, people begin to question whether the empty tomb was really a resurrection, but they realize that this is what took place around that time frame. Secondly, the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb saw it happen. You can read about this in Matthew 27. What's fascinating about this is the Pharisees were afraid that his disciples were going to come and steal the body, so they went to Rome and said, hey, it's good for you and for us that this doesn't create a revolt or a revolution you know, in your empire, so let's put a garrison of Roman soldiers at the tomb. And when the stone was rolled away, they fell down flat as if they were dead. That's what the Bible tells us. And then it says the Pharisees actually paid them off and said, tell people the body was stolen. The problem with that is if the body was really stolen, every single one of those guys would have been killed. Because that would have been the penalty for not doing what you were asked to do in that day and time. In fact, no body was produced. Rome, as well as the Pharisees, had every reason to come up with the body to squish what was happening, especially those first several years in Jerusalem beyond. And they couldn't come up with the body, no matter how much pressure, no matter how much intimidation, no matter what they did, there was no body that was produced. As we already read, Jesus appeared to hundreds, not just a couple. They saw him and they couldn't unsee him. The disciples, this is one of the biggest ones, the disciples were completely transformed. How do you go? From being fearful of your life to courageously proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. It must be because Jesus rose from the dead. Think about it for just a second. What advantage is it for a lie? What positivity did this bring in their real lives? For almost all of them were ostracized. They were persecuted. And 11 out of the 12 were killed brutally to the very last breath that Jesus was who he says he was and that he rose from the dead. So you're like, interesting that these average people would go all that way for a lie that made no earthly benefit to them. In fact, you think about my favorite, James, remember the half-brother of Jesus, based his life on this fact. You know the hardest people to convince of anything? Your own family members, right? There's nobody harder Think about it, Jesus' own brother, along with the other his siblings, and Mary actually comes to Jesus earlier in Scripture and says, hey, we need to kind of meet with Jesus, we need to kind of pull him away from whatever he's doing around here, and he now becomes a follower of Jesus. He becomes, and these are sources outside the Bible, the leader in Jerusalem for the church who also dies a horrific death, believing his half-brother did rise from the dead. What about uh, Paul, one of the great persecutors, becomes one of the greatest followers so here's a guy who writes a good chunk of our New Testament who first is on the scene persecuting these people, trying to squish you know, what, this, what he thought was a lie until all of a sudden he meets him face-to-face and says, uh, this is true, and I'm gonna base my life on it. Uh, the church is birthed, and a day of worship becomes Sunday. So you see that happen in history. How about this one? Our history dates are based on this event. Think about it for a second. We're in the year 2023 based on what? The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it literally changed the world's calendar because of this event, this person's life. I want to go a step further, study history. 300 years after this event, Rome, the empire, becomes a Christian nation. Now these people thought Caesar was God and it was okay to worship other gods and yet these Christians wouldn't conform so they persecuted them. You can read all the stories about them killing them in the Colosseum, burning them at the stake and then 300 years later it becomes a Christian nation? Are you kidding me? People for generations have gone about trying to disprove it. Not only did they not but many actually have become followers and the list goes on and on. If the resurrection is true then everything Jesus did and said was true. If it is true, then Jesus actually is God because that's what he claimed to be. If it is true, our sins are forgiven if we receive him. If it is true, grace is true and hope is real. If it is true, Jesus is the only way to God. If it is true, then the Bible is God's word. If it is true, then my identity and your identity is changed, and my life and your life has eternal meaning and significance. If it is true, Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to our pain and suffering on this side of eternity. If it is true, there is a heaven and hell. If it is true, you and I will see our loved ones again who've received Christ. If it is true, no bad day will ever be experienced, will ever compare to the good days that await. That's something we can celebrate. Because it's true. And so my question for you Is this your day? Is this your moment? Just like other things in your life, but maybe more significantly, that changes everything. See, if the resurrection, let's be honest, if the resurrection isn't true, then don't worry about it. Thanks for coming. It doesn't change. It changes nothing. But if it is true, then it changes everything. Now, I don't want to be the pastor that says, and all your dreams will come true if you just accept Jesus Christ, because sometimes it comes across that way. In fact, let me be even more real. Even if you accept Christ, which we're going to give you an opportunity to do in just a second, you're going to still wake up tomorrow with a bad work situation, if that's what you're in. You're going to still wake up tomorrow with maybe a bad relational issue that you have, maybe a bad financial situation, maybe still with that diagnosis. You're going to still wake up tomorrow with these realities in your life. But here's what's different. You will wake up with a change of perspective You will wake up with a new connection with God. You will see things and begin to experience things in a much different light or experience that's going to be able to provide strength, perspective, and hope as you go through these things and prayerfully on a different path as you begin to move forward. So how will you respond? In fact, Jesus asked that same question to a gal named Martha in our New Testament, John chapter 11, where in his own words, this is from Jesus, and I want to give this to you. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this? Now, what, has, what stops people from, from, from receiving this is that they think sometimes, and maybe this is you, that you have to change first. Uh, I know some people think, well, a lightning's going to strike, and look, we're still here, and you still actually came in, so it's okay you know, if I ever walk you know, into a church, and it didn't happen. So look, hey, there's, there's a chance. But you don't have to clean yourself up. The first step is to receive Christ, and he's the one that begins to clean you from the inside out. Now, is it uncomfortable? Yes, it's absolutely uncomfortable. But think about it for just a second. In reality, many of us are living in dysfunction Because we refuse to be uncomfortable, we'd rather be comfortable with the dysfunction that we're in. And that's why we find ourselves in these same patterns, because even though it's not healthy and not good, whatever those patterns may be, we will stay in those patterns because it's comfortable. And what Jesus is asking us to be is uncomfortable, which is a better path and a better way when we receive him. Now, I know there's doubts doesn't mean that all the doubts are going to go away after you receive Christ either. It's a journey that we all get a chance to go on, but we get to go on it together. Remember, Thomas had doubts as well. So how will you respond? I'm going to ask you for a decision in just a moment. In the same way that Peter, remember he went from cowardice to courage to hopeless to hopeful, and he stands up before a crowd of thousands you know, knowing what's gonna to happen to him, and he proclaims this message that I've just given to you. And then this is what we see in Acts chapter two, verse 37. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, we've heard this message. What should we do? And Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this promise is for you, for your children, to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God, is God calling you. Then Peter continued, want, I'll make sure, if you, if you, hey, by the way, if you're part of Valley Real Life and this is your home, don't miss this next verse. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. So next time I go long, you just remember, it's biblical, okay, just for those of you who call Real Life home, all right, <laughs> just want to throw that in there strongly urging all his listeners, could be the same message today, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. See, this resurrection could be your day to receive and to follow Jesus. For some of you, it may be the first time. For some of you, it may be coming back to him. For others of you, getting baptized is just the next step in your process in following him. Now, baptism is the beautiful picture of the resurrection story. It it is literally, the, the waters of baptism is you saying, I'm dying to myself, and you go in like you're going into a grave, this one's of water, and you're raised to walk a new life, a changed life. Now, where did I get that idea? In Romans chapter six, verse three and four says, have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? We've died to ourselves, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives, changed forever. First you believe, and then you are baptized. So some people ask, well, how do we baptize people around here? Because I don't know what your background is. Some churches have sprinkled, some dunk. Some dunk three times, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That gets a little exhausting, you know, so we don't do that. We do, I just want to make sure I warn you, we do uh, baptize once, but we might hold you down based on how sinful you are. So <laughs> some of you might be there a long time. Bubbles might be coming up. I am just kidding. Just absolutely cute. Maybe you were baptized as an infant. Awesome. My wife was baptized as an infant as well, and we want to honor your parents for that choice that was made. But there is a time for you to declare and say, that was my parents' decision, and this is now my decision. Now, some of you are hesitant because you've been a follower for a long time, and you've never been baptized, and you're embarrassed to think, if I do that now, what will people think? If you know the Lord, which I believe that you do, then you would do anything to honor him. Let your love for him lead you. Don't let your pride stop you. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've done these things, I'm gonna ask you in just a second to pray like crazy for other people. Because what we're about to do is gonna be either really awesome or for me, it's gonna be really awkward. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask you in just a second If you've made a decision to follow Christ, and your next step is to be baptized, that you go straight to this baptistry and you get baptized in your clothes. And I know there's lots of objections. Like, wait a minute, Dan, can't get baptized in the clothes. I don't have a towel. Guess what? We have hundreds of towels for you. So lots of towels ready for you. Now, some of the others of you like, but Dan, I am wearing my Easter best. And in fact, some of my clothes may be a little revealing, if you know what I mean, and we wouldn't want that to happen, especially on Easter Sunday. Well, good news. We have a shirt for everybody. will be offered as you go in, as well as when you leave, you know, upon your baptistry. So you don't have to worry about that. You're like, but Dan, what do I do with my phone and wallet and stuff? We have a bag, you know, for you to be able to... And, and mostly trustworthy people are back there. So we... <laughs> We're about 90 percent, so you're good. you know We've only lost a little bit, but uh, yeah, this is put your name on it to be able to do that. And I do know that some of you are like, "But Dan, I don't want to get my car wet, because my precious car, we have a garbage bag for every single person so that you can actually put it in your car and, pr- and protect the precious material there. <laughs> now, some of you are thinking, but Dan, I don't know if my family is going to agree. It's not between you and your family. It's between you and God. I want to make sure I'm clear. We're not planning on baptizing kids until after they have talked to their parents, maybe even a pastor, so the very least, 10 years on up. And I can't ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do as well. So I'm going to get in my clothes in a few minutes and that trust that God is going to lead. And it was very shocking on Thursday because it was very nerving. Like, is it going to happen? I don't know if anyone's going to come forward. Just to give you an idea, we've had 77 baptisms already. Okay. And so I need you to process. Do you believe this? And what is your response? The resurrection is real and it can change everything. While you're processing that, Let's go ahead and hear the second part of Kim's story.
1: One of the early contracts that my husband was placed on as an electrician was doing the electrical work for Valley Real Life. And so my husband was here putting together the electrical work for the building and I would bring my boys uh, to meet with him for lunch every day because both of our boys were diagnosed with autism. The therapists for our boys were telling us how important it was going to be to integrate social interaction for the boys. And so after VRO was built, I thought, well, let's try it. The boys are comfortable with coming to the building, so let's try a service. I remember Nathan Rector calling people, come forward and be baptized. I just remember my heart accelerating Like I literally felt like the music was getting louder and the louder the music got, it felt like my heart was going to explode out of my chest. I remember in my head hearing, trust me, trust me, will you trust me? Will you let me be your father? I'm just in my street clothes. I wasn't prepared for this moment. I just knew with my heart pounding so fast, I had to do it. I could not second guess it. I couldn't stop to think about it. I finally hit the moment where I wanted a father. I did not want to do this alone anymore. It was a moment of cleansing, of Everything that had taken place in my childhood, everything that I had allowed in my young adulthood, it was like God said, I just wash you clean. And I just remember standing there just watching the water drip down, feeling loved, cleansed, and accepted. Every hard thing going forward since I was baptized, I gave it over to God. I knew I had someone to lean on, that I didn't always have to be so strong. I didn't always have to have all the answers and be in control. So that day, 46 of us chose to be baptized at VRL. I was baptized in 2010. George was baptized in 2015. George wrote Cain's name on the baptistry. And Cain then wrote my mother's name on the baptistry. And in 2020, when my mom was being baptized, she looked at me and said, Lilith is next. Then Lilith was baptized this past month. And so every single child that I have birthed has been baptized. And it's changed the generation for our home. What God said He would be faithful to for me was building that foundation if I trusted Him and my children now have that foundation.